Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right, good morning. How are you? All right, I thought we were done with 1 Timothy last week, but um, man, I'm just going through withdrawals. So one more week. Let's go 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is where we are going to be this morning, and I'm going to read just one little short passage out of chapter 3, and our plan is this morning to, uh, for me to offer uh, six reflections on what it means to be a healthy local church. And let me tell you that if you're visiting with us and you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in the rack in front of you. Uh, please keep that Bible as our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. Uh, I think you'd be really helped to open it, and if you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible, uh, you can find 1 Timothy. Chapter 3 is where we're going to start off on, uh, on page either 780 or 992. And we're going to be all over 1 Timothy today. And what we've been doing, if you're newer or just visiting today, is we, we spend most of our time here on Sundays, in fact, probably 95% of the time just working through books of the Bible. We call this expositional preaching, and that's a word that means that we're trying to expose the Word of God to our lives and minds and hearts. I think that is, is really the best way to, to do our gatherings together as we look at God's Word. Today is going to be a little unusual because I am going to be reflecting on some things that we have been basking in for the past several months as we've been working through this letter, First Timothy. And so it's, it's a bit of an unusual and hopefully uh, encouraging and pastoral message for us as a, as a church family. Then the following week, we're going to get into uh, some messages out of the Old Testament that look forward to Christ as a kind of advent, uh, uh, looking forward to the return of Christ and, or the, the coming of Christ as a, in his first coming, and then as we look forward to his second coming. And then in January, we're going to begin... Uh, Romans, Lord willing, which I'm really looking forward to. As you're finding First Timothy, let me just mention that uh, one of the things that uh, we're going to do at this December one another meeting is we are going to have the opportunity to hear from and just give members an opportunity to, to ask questions about an elder candidate that we're putting forward to the church. So if you weren't at our last member meeting in November, um, I'm telling you now that we are putting forward a new elder candidate, Ruben Moyana. And there is a picture of Reuben and his wife, Edith, and their beautiful girls, Joy and Jada. And Reuben um, has taught a Sunday morning class recently. You maybe see him up here uh, reading the call to worship often. Reuben is a dentist in Fort Mitchell, Alabama. Um, he actually is originally from Zimbabwe. And so maybe that's when you hear that beautiful accent that he has. I came here to the United States when he was 17 or 18 to go to college and then dental school. And while he was in Alabama, which is actually in the United States, um, <laughs> he met Edith, who is from uh, Alabama, and, there, and they met in college. And so they've been members of the church for several years. And it's really a joy to put forward Reuben as an elder candidate. So the way that works here is that our membership, if you're a member of Crosspoint, at our next upcoming member meeting, which will be after this December 1 in January, we'll have an opportunity, Lord willing, to affirm Reuben as an elder. That doesn't mean that he would come to work at the church. He will be a lay elder. He's going to keep being a dentist, but he, along with the other lay elders, will help to lead and, and, and really govern the, the affairs of the church. We're really excited about that. So please do come December and ask Reuben questions, um, and that'll be a joyful time. Okay, well, let's get into it. First Timothy 3, um, let me read verses 14 and 15. And there's this verse that as we've been working through this letter that, that captured me. And I think it's really the center point of First Timothy, the whole letter. And Paul writes this to this young pastor. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Note there that Paul says that the church is a household, it's a family. It's a place where the living God dwells. And this household, this family, has a mission to be something that holds up the truth, the good news of the gospel to an onlooking world. And this morning, we, before we move on, 
Uh, I think all the books that we preach through obviously impact me, but for some reason in God's providence, 1 Timothy has had a particular impact on me as I think about us as a church 11 years in now. We started this church 11 years ago with a group of people much smaller than is in this room right now. And as I think about what the future holds for us at Crosspoint and what we're doing now and what we've been through together and, Lord willing, what we will do in the decades to come, uh, this book, which is about the life of a local church, has had a, a particular impact on me. And before we scoot on into the next series, I want to take some time to share from my heart pastorally uh, about, about some things that, that are on my heart. So let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Lord, we, we thank you for your word, for your kindness to us, that we can gather together as your people. Lord, we pray that as we reflect on Paul's letter to Timothy, which is your holy inspired word, that we would be encouraged, exhorted, conformed more into the image of Christ as a local church. I pray for my friends that are in this room who do not yet know Jesus. They're not yet trusting in you. Maybe they know about you, but they, they're not putting the weight of their hope and future in what you have done on the cross through your son Jesus. Lord, I pray today you might be so kind as to resurrect them from the deadness of their sin so that they might put their hope in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you do all these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people and for the salvation of all those that you are calling. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Eleven years ago when we planted Crosspoint um, with just a few friends and not, not much else, one of the questions that I was asked all the time, virtually it was just the question you ask people that are planting church, is they would ask me, well, what's your vision? And I was always, like, I never knew, I instinctively knew that that was something that young church planners were supposed to have a cool, maybe even alliterated, hip answer to. But I just never had an, I mean, I don't, a vision, I don't know, I just, I want to preach the Bible and kind of not do stupid stuff. And that was, you know, we've mostly lived up to that in these last 11 years. But there's this, this sort of strange, weird church culture sometimes in our, in our this culture that uh, just seems like you got to have this strategy and this thing and this really hip sort of figured out way of engaging and reaching and all of these kind of things. And, and I think as I've read through 1 Timothy, that's just reaffirmed for me how, how really... Uh, not so that is, that you don't need all of these cool little things to be a healthy church. You just need to know the gospel, be committed to preaching God's word, and as a group of people, as God would have it grow, reason together to bear with one another and live together in a way that we live out the implications of this word, and then let God, by his sovereign grace, do what he will with that obedience. Regardless of whether you have a cool website or, you know, uh, alliterated mission statements, you just kind of reason to make much of Jesus in your time. I read a book recently called The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ by a pastor in Nashville named Ray Ortland, a man that I respect greatly. And he had a wonderful description of what I think the church should be. Listen to these words. He says, gospel doctrine creates gospel cultures called churches where wonderful things happen to unworthy people for the glory of Christ alone. But it doesn't end in our churches. A gospel divine church is a prophetic sign that points beyond itself. It is a model home of the new neighborhood Christ is building for eternity. People can walk into this kind of church right now, to see human beauty that will last forever. Such a church makes heaven real to people on earth so that they can put their faith in Christ now while they still have the chance. That is a beautiful description of what the local church should be. And when it talks about human beauty, 
It's not talking about good-looking people on the outward sense. You understand that, right? And that's another thing that bugged me about church planting. And, like, you got to have this website where you got to have, like, you know, on the front cover, you got to have all these models, right? And, of course, it was so rich. You had the, the, the gray-haired, distinguished-looking African-American man next to the, you know, good-looking college student Asian girl next to the, you know, the young couple that with, you know, just like, um, okay, everybody's cute, and we're just awesomely racially diverse. That's not, that's not what I think human, I mean, praise God, we want that. I mean, not necessarily cute people. Cute people have their own problems, but, but human beauty, <laughs> I'm, get, I'm getting off track. Human beauty is the soul that is transformed by Jesus. A bunch of broken people that come together to do life together and something beautiful happens. So with this idea that the church is to be a pillar and buttress of that beautiful truth that God uses in his sovereign grace to draw people to himself, I have six pastoral reflections on what it means to be a healthy church together. I recommend that you just keep 1 Timothy open. We're going to have these statements up on the screen, not going to have a lot of scripture on the screen. I'm just going to read some portions of 1 Timothy and reflect. One, a healthy church understands that it loves people best by being clear about the truth. Back in 1 Timothy 1, Paul reminded Timothy, in fact, he exhorted him in chapter 1 and verse 3. He says, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia... (laughs) Remain, remain at Ephesus. I don't know why that's made me so emotional, but I think it's made me emotional because I, I confess that there are times in these past 11 years where I feel like I've made a mistake and I should have just, just stayed in the army and I should have just got a job and I should have I just kind of been a good guy that was a Little League coach. And, and, I, and I, I read that. And sometimes I think, I don't know if I have the endurance for another 20 or 30 years. And I read that text, and it says, remain at Ephesus. Stay there. I'm sorry, this is a little self-help session, you guys. (laughs) So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He goes on down in verse 8. He says, Now we know that the law is good. The teaching of the Bible is good. If anyone uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, teach the Bible for these people that are caught in sin that need to hear the truth of God's good news. In verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The thing that this world needs most, that this city needs most, is not a hip, cool worship band. Not a neat vibe, not an awesome website, not a bunch of hipster, sleek, cool, chic Christians. This world needs Christians and leaders of those Christians who are committed to the timeless truth of God, who realize that the best way to love a surrounding world is to be clear about who Jesus is. And God will do what God will do with that. Now, unless you're wondering, oh my gosh, Brad's a wreck. He couldn't even get through one sentence without crying. Is he going to quit? Is he going to... No, no. Exhale. I think I'm good for the next 30 years. Well, I'm 40, 46. Man, you guys might be done with me before that. In fact, yesterday I had this conversation. I'm going to India. I just put wind in my pastoral sails. I'm going to India in February again to work with Gareth Franks and, 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 and participate in a, a conference there at the church with the church in India. 
and I'm going to be working with this retired British pastor, and he and his wife uh, pastored for many years in England, and now they are retired, and they travel around to several missions connections that they've had over the years, and they just spend like three months in India, and they go to three months to other places, and I thought, man, I want to do that, and so I talked to him on the phone the other day, and I said, brother, since I heard about what you do in your retirement, you have become my aspiration. I would love to spend another couple decades at Crosspoint, and my wife and I, I don't know if I told you about this, babe, but we're just going to, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to travel around and, and, he, and you know, just pour into our mission partners in Uganda and India and spend three or four months there. And, uh, oh, I, I, just, I can't wait. That's going to be awesome. And, um, and he said in this British accent, he said, well, brother, that's a, that's a good aspiration, but uh, finish well, finish well. <laughs> so I said, yeah. all right, yes, sir. A healthy church understands that it loves people best by being clear about the truth. And one of the challenges in pastoral ministry is that we, are, we live in an age where much of Christianity in our American context is dominated by feelings. And Christian leaders who want to stand up for good truth in a culture of the feels, where people are so vulnerable to hip-looking websites and beautiful people who can produce things in beautiful ways but aren't necessarily true, to stand up and say, no, that blogger that you like is wrong or that ministry that seems really awesome is off, comes across as abrasive and legalistic to a culture that is dominated by the feels. And one of the ways that we can love the world best is by being clear about the truth. And this often means that at times we will need to say, that's wrong. This is right. Two, a healthy church understands that the gospel is inclusively exclusive. What what does that mean? Well, look at, at 1 Timothy 2. Just been captured by this paragraph where Paul says, He says, First of all, then I urge in verse 1 there that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, when Paul says all people there, I don't think he means every single person on the earth. I think that he means all kinds of people. For kings, in fact, he qualifies it there in the next verse. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people. Again, in context, I think he means all kinds of people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, in one sense, the gospel is is the most inclusive news in the world, that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, rich people and poor people and people from every tribe and tongue and nation. In fact, that is a guarantee at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 7. We see this vision where John the apostle has this revelation from Jesus and he sees that from every tribe and tongue and nation there will be people around the throne worshiping God. So the gospel is incredibly inclusive. People that were raised in the church that are self-righteous, people that are far away from God, steeped in sin, nobody is beyond God's reach. But yet, then, the gospel's not inclusive, meaning that there's many ways whoever calls upon the name of the Lord through the one way, the exclusive way of the way that God has made to himself. Verse 5, for there is one God And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So there, do you see this inclusive call? All kinds of people must come through this one way, Jesus. And herein, friends, is the the most important news. It's the gospel in just short form. That there is a holy God who has made everything for his glory He knew that the creation that he created would fall. In fact, he planned for it. That's a mysterious providence and and truth that we can't finally piece together here in this life, but someday we will understand. God who created the world planned for its fall. We know this because in the Bible it says that Jesus 
is the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. So God has made a decision, a covenant within the Godhead itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to redeem a world through the sending of God the Son before the world was even created. Think about the implications of that. That means that there is no evil, no sin, no thing that has snuck up on God. He has planned for it before the foundations of the earth. So God, who is holy and good and righteous, creates the world that he knows will fall. It falls. He sends his son Jesus to live the life that fallen creation and mankind could never live, to bear the wrath of God on the cross as a sacrifice to remove the punishment that should have been ours, all those that would turn and trust in Jesus. And then his son, Jesus, fully man and fully God, that's why he's called the mediator, because he represents God to us, and he represents us to God. He then rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, and now calls all people whosoever, all kinds of people to turn from trusting in themselves and to put their hope in him. Friends, that's the exclusive, beautiful gospel. Now, the most important thing about every person is not from which group they came from, but whether or not they are trusting in the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This is what defines us as a local church. This is our core. This is our one foundation. This is uh, the great news. This is the one drumbeat that we play every Sunday. Everything in life, everything in this Bible flows out of this one distinguishing truth that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It's the most important news in the world. And if you're trusting in it, it's the most important thing about you. And if you're not trusting in it, it is the most important thing that you must do. But here's the reality. We still, even if we are trusting in this good news, are so apt to identify ourselves by other things. We... We segregate ourselves into different socioeconomic groups, different ethnic groups, different political groups. And I think that this gospel that is inclusively exclusive, when it becomes the defining characteristic of a church and a group of people, has some very important implications. It means that we are not primarily white or black or Latino or Asian. It means that we are bought by the blood of Christ, and we are now in a new family. We are now one new man together. It means that we are not primarily Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or liberals, but there is a new defining characteristic about who we are. And quite frankly, one of the challenges of leading a church in our culture is helping people remember what is the most distinguishing thing about them and to live together with that thing being the most important thing. I mean, you know, it's just, you can't even say anything, hardly, without people assuming that what you're saying is you're siding with one political cause or whatever or another. And it's because we are so sensitive about all of these secondary and temporary qualifications of what it means to be a person now. And we are so unaware of the greater truth about us, which is the fact that if we're trusting in Jesus, we have this one mediator and we are now knit together as one people, right? So how do you identify yourself? Are you a white Christian? Are you a black Christian? Are you a Latino Christian? Are you a conservative Christian or a liberal Christian? Are you a Christian that voted for this candidate or that candidate? Are you more vocal about those things in your life than you are about the one mediator? I'm not saying those things don't have their place and they're not important on some level. But the moment we are more passionate about our politics and our subcultures, we dumb down and mute and neuter the most important news that we are called to live out together. Three, 
A healthy church is led by humble, godly, imperfect, sober-minded men. And I put the emphasis on men, not in any way to say that men are more important than women. Men and women, as the Bible tells us over and over again, even in the first chapter, are created as co-equally in, as image bearers of God. But God has given mankind a kind of complementary order whereby men are called to be the humble Christ-like leaders in the home and in the church. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, Paul is reflecting on the worship gathering of the local church and he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, that he doesn't want women to teach in the gathered audience of the church and he's moving into a discussion about the leaders of the local church and he's saying that a woman shouldn't teach or exercise authority over the gathered church. Rather, she should remain quiet for Adam was formed first in Eve. And so Paul is rooting his logic for the way the church should be led by men, not in any consequence of the fall, but as a result of the pre-fall Order of creation, Adam formed first, then Eve. And then he goes on in 1 Timothy 3 to lay out the qualifications for the overseers, leaders, pastors, elders of the church. And he says they should be men, not supermen, but men who meet these qualifications. So a few reflections for us as a local church is that we, we need, well, clearly we need more elders. And Lord willing, Reuben will be an elder of our church, but we need more lay elders. We have a growing church. We have some 560-something members and many more than that in attendance on a Sunday, and we need more elders. But more than that, on an organic level, I pray that we would continue to cultivate a culture where we are a church full of men who lead our families, and by that I mean that we don't have to all be theologians, but we need to be men who take the initiative. Listen to me, men. It doesn't mean that you need to be a spiritual superman, but it means that you are leaning forward with an open Bible. It means that you are putting thought into how to care for, protect, and shepherd your family spiritually. And brothers, that is not rocket science. We know how to care about stuff. We care about our hobbies. We care about recreation. We, we care about all sorts of things. Put that same care by God's grace into caring for your family. Spend some time praying for them, reading the Bible to them, maybe getting a good resource out of our resource room to read to help you prepare as a man to just know more about what it means to lead your family. And praise God, we have a culture of men in this church who are striving for that. So this is not a scold. This is an encouragement to, to stir up more of that in our church. And when that happens... Women are not subjugated. They are actually valued and honored. Femin when, when, when men understand biblical masculinity and the church is led by men and not women, something beautiful happens. Actually, femininity is exalted, not subjugated. And then finally, pray for us that Crosspoint would be a place where young men are trained and sent out into pastoral ministry. I hope you know that our goal is not to just continue to get bigger and bigger. I don't know what the Lord will do with Crosspoint in the years to come, whether it will continue to grow or whether it will level, level out. But one thing I do think that we should be doing and be thinking about, and I hope that will happen here, is that Crosspoint would be a place that is invested in not just the local ministry here in this church, but in the gospel ministry in local churches in our city. We want to love not only the nations, we want to go not only to India and Uganda and China and Kosovo, but we want to go to our neighbors. And one of the best ways that we can do that is to be a blessing and a resource 
to the local church ministry in our area. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to train young men who are on fire with the word of God, who have the gifts that God has given them so that we can deploy them to our city so that they can fill the pulpits of Columbus with fire and the gospel. Some people say, well, we've got lots and lots of churches in Columbus. And I say this with all humility. We do have lots and lots of churches in Columbus, but we don't have lots and lots of Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in Columbus. And I say that without, not, not as some guy that's negative. I'm, optimi- I'm so optimistic. I mean, I, I read in Matthew 16 where it says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I'm confident of that. But one of the things that I think we need to be involved in and intentional about, and we are, and I just want to stir this up again in us, is that Crosspoint would be a place where young men are trained up, spend some time on staff here, and they're sent out to pastor, Lord's willing, or revitalize churches in Columbus. And so part of that is, is, is that we as a church have open hands and we're willing to invest. We're willing to give investment to the training of young men because we realize that one of the best things we can do is train up young guys that go pastor a church down the street and that 40 or 50 or 100 of you guys would go with that brother to help breathe life into this church or to plant a new church. We've got young men on our staff who are wonderful communicators of God's word, and it wouldn't serve the gospel well to have them just sort of stay here on staff for 10 or 15 or 20 years, but for them to be encouraged to cut their teeth, to grow, and then to take a group of people from Cross Point and to go to plant a new church or revitalize a church. And that's one of the reasons that we joined a local association of churches, the Columbus Baptist Association, several years ago, so that we could be in partnership with these groups of churches so that we can, Lord willing, be an encouragement to them and they can be an encouragement to us. Oh, that we would raise up good fathers and godly elders and young pastors that we can deploy for the sake of the gospel. Not, so it's just not about cross point, but it's about the Lord's work in our city. Four, a healthy church knows it is in a fight and it is not surprised by challenges and obstacles. I mean, come on, let's just look at the three that we've just went over, knowing the truth and being fierce about it, understanding the gospel, that Jesus is the only way, deploying young men. Do you think that we can just sort of skate along like with the Bee Gees soundtrack in the background while we rollerblade through Columbus acting like everything's cool? For those of you that are under the age of 40, the Bee Gees were one of the most musically talented groups in the history of American music. You should, you should find out more about them. But come on, friends. This will be opposed. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse, chapter 4, verse 10. He says, for to this end, I think he's summarizing gospel ministry there, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. In other words, a local church that wants to take the gospel seriously and, and, and not be about themselves, but be about the spreading of a passion for the supremacy of Christ will Engage in a fight. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a toil. It's going to be difficult. When you call sinners to repentance, they don't come clean. They come dirty and confused and conflicted. And, and by the way, that's, that's how all of us are to some degree. And we're going to rub each other the wrong way. And we're going to disagree with one another. And we're going to fail one another. And we're going to sin against one another. And we're going to do all of this in the context of wanting to spread a passion for the glory of God. As we endure our own messes together. And this is just what's going on inside the church. Beyond that, there are spiritual forces of wickedness intent on destroying and maiming the faithful preaching of God's word. Listen to this. This is Ephesians chapter. I heard this recently in a message and I've read this verse countless times. But I, I, I don't know that I've ever thought about it in this context. In Ephesians chapter 2, 
verses one through four, it's one of the most important passages in the whole Bible, and I know that I'm gonna get an email from somebody who likes to kid me about how I say, this is the most important passage in the Bible. I know that. Go ahead, send the email now, and so then when I, at the end of the church, I can know that you were on your phone during, during the sermon. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Ephesians, you know who you are, brother. I'm looking over, you sit over there, I'm, okay. All right. I love it, every time. Ephesians 2, but this really is like one of the most important passages in the Bible. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses. Paul is speaking about all humanity. By the way, the Ephesian church is the one that Timothy's pastoring, so this is, there's a lot of connection between Ephesians and First and Second Timothy. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, listen to this, following the prince of the power of the air, that's speaking of our adversary, the devil, Satan, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So who's that spirit? It's the prince of the power of the air who's leading unregenerate people in their sin. And it says that that demonic spirit, the spirit of Satan himself, is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, what does that mean? It means that there is an adversary, the devil, who is at work in a fallen culture intent on leading people away from the truth and destroying the truth. People are not neutral. Do you see that? I just, I I still have to rid myself of this default thinking. I kind of think of people in three categories. I think of them in terms of Christians. Then I think of them in terms of evil people opposed to the gospel. And then there's just kind of this neutral kind of blank slate. You know, my mailman. And the guy that's the clerk at the local, you know, spectrum or whatever. I just kind of put them in this sort of general category of people who are sort of neutral spiritually. But the Bible doesn't speak that way. It says that there are only two types of people in this world. There are those who have been made alive by God through his grace, given a new heart so that they can behold who Jesus is and trust in him. Those are Christians. And there are those who are not made alive, who are still dead in their sins. Not that they're actively engaging and trying to destroy the church, but it says here that the spirit of Satan is at work in their lives. We are being opposed, friends. We're not playing tiddlywinks. We're engaging in war every time we gather together and meet in one another's homes and infiltrate our businesses and places of influence with the light of the gospel. Do you see that? We are in a holy war. And we should not be surprised when the world hates us. We should not be shocked. In fact, Peter says this in 1 Peter 4. He says, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. Five, a healthy church is built on and around the word of God. I hope that you, if nothing else, know that this is one of the great passions of what we do here at Crosspoint. Over and over and over again, Paul says to Timothy, guard the teaching. Guard the right preaching of the gospel and the teaching of God's word. Guard it. 1 Timothy 4 verse 11, he says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, verse 13, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Verse 16, listen to this. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In other words, build the church, Timothy, on the right 
teaching of the Bible. And God will do what God will do with that. Now, listen, churches that believe this passionately can even go in air in the way they execute this beautiful command. Because sometimes we, don't we kind of pit good doctrine with like gracious, warm humility and joy? And isn't that a false, that's a false dichotomy that doesn't need to exist. Good theology, the right teaching of God's word, should produce warm doxology, which is the passionate worship of God. Theology, the study of God, should produce doxology, which is the worship of God. But we pit those things against one another sometimes. And let's not pit the word of God against the spirit of God. The spirit of God works as the word of God is rightly delivered. Now, just a little personal preference here. I would love for there to be more, just more passion in our worship and in our listening and responding to God's word. Maybe that's just the Italian side of me. But I think that the word of God should warm us, humble us. Look, I know you're a bunch of mostly middle class white folks, but it would not kill you to when, you know, we're preaching the word of God and there's just a, maybe a good point or two for you to just give it a, like a, yeah, amen. Amen, amen. <laughs> thank you. Every now and again, somebody will come up and say, Brad, I wanted to, but you know, I'm like, do it, brother, do it, come on. It would not kill us if after we spend time in the word of God and the music is being played for us to respond, for you to find a place, whether down here, not that there's anything like spiritual or, 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 or secret about coming down to the stage or over there, but for us to just lean forward and let the word of God Produce in us a response to God. Let theology produce doxology as we build the church on the right teaching of God's word. Let's not be a church that becomes cold and smug in our doctrinal precision, but let it produce in us broken hearts and tear-filled eyes and incredible optimism and passion for the purposes of God in our life, in our city, and the nation's. Let the, yes, yes. Well, no, you're, you're there. You're trying. You're trying. Let's do it again next week. <laughs> but let's be people. And look, I, look I, I get everybody. Some of you are like, mm. <laughs> I know we have introverts among us. And, 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 and listen, be an introvert to the glory of God. I'm, not, I'm being so be an introvert to the glory of God. But my fear is that some of us are just kind of sleepy. And I don't know, man. I just, I want, to, I want this sanctuary when we gather to just be white hot with the beautiful radiance of the glory of God. And you know what God does when, when there's an atmosphere like that? And I'm not talking about goofy stuff. I know, like, if you got a, if you got a tambourine, this is not permission for you to break it out, all right? I want you to know that. <laughs> Don't be running around here with streamers and doing goofy stuff. We're going to be in order. But I'm talking about when people are leaning forward in the glory of God, when they gather together, it becomes a kind of greenhouse where God tills the soil and plants the seed of the word of God and causes things to sprout that we never thought would have sprouted in any other context. That's what God does when his people lean forward as good theology produces good doxology and the right preaching produces warm hearts for the glory of God. And then finally, a healthy church practices meaningful membership and care for one another. I was just so struck by 1 Timothy 5 where he says that there should be this kind of generational respect and honor. It says, don't rebuke an older man in verse 1, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. In other words, have this type of multi-generational warmth and respect and honor 
I think of Psalm 145 where the psalmist says, one generation shall commend your works to another. And then he goes on in chapter 5 to talk about a particular class of people in the church, in this instance, widows. And he goes into this lengthy exposition about how the church is to be very intentional in caring for widows. And certainly that's the primary application of 1 Timothy 5, that we be a church that cares for widows and other vulnerable people in our, in our midst, in our church. But let's not just stop there. I think that what behind all of this is, is Paul commending that we be a people that have a special responsibility towards one another, those of us who are here, part of this local church, in a way that we don't have towards other Christians. And this is in no way meant to be exclusive. It's not meant to say that we don't love our brothers and sisters from other churches in our city. Of course we do. But one of the ways that we can be most clear about the gospel and one of the primary ways that we can be a witness to unbelievers in our city and around us is for us to have particular care for one another so that the gospel that we preach and believe is embodied in the way that we care for one another. Do you see that? So actually, sometimes we tend to think of a church being very inclusive and turned off towards an outside world, and all they care about is each other? Well, certainly churches can be like that. But let's think about it in a different context. That a church that cares well for one another, in the right heart, and understanding the gospel well, knows that they do that not to the exclusion of their evangelism to their neighbors, but as part of their evangelism to their neighbors. Do you see that? And so we have this unique responsibility as Christians in a local church together to be prioritized in our relationships towards one another, for, there to, for the church to be full of discipling relationships where people are loving one another, not to the exclusion of an onlooking world, but for the benefit of the onlooking world. So think about it even now. Who's somebody that is just, you've been sitting next to for a year and you don't know them yet? And you got, a, you got some walk-around money in your pocket right now and you could take them to lunch today or next week, and you could get to know them. Maybe your kid's in the same children's ministry room. Maybe just, there's just people just kind of getting outside of themselves and loving each other, taking responsibility for one another. Maybe some of you have been coming to church for a long time, and, and really the leaders of this church don't really know who you are, and I, I think that's a shame. We want to know who you are. There, there are... F- <laughs> There are 564 members of this church and all of the pictures are in this book and I know every single one of them and I pray for you if you're a member of this church throughout the month and all the other pastors do. And if you're a Christian, you need a group of leaders that is somehow responsible for you and accountable to you. And you need some sort of mechanism in your life biblically whereby you are accountable to other people. In fact, I think that's implicit in the Bible. We see Paul saying there's a list of widows. Well, how do we know who these widows are? We see in other parts of the Bible where people fall into sin, and Paul says this brother that's in sin, deal with him in a severe, merciful sort of way that you put him out of the church so that God might use that discipline that you exercise over this brother in sin as a means to wake him up so that hopefully he will come back. Well, if there's something to be put out of, there must be something to be put into, and I think that's the church. Not just coming physically, attending on a Sunday, but where you are saying, I am going to submit myself to this group of people for my spiritual good and for the good of the leaders, for the good of the witness of the gospel, so that collectively we know who we are to sort of care for in a way. We know who we're responsible for, and that aids the preaching and displaying of the gospel. If you you aren't a member of the church, I would love for you to consider coming to our membership class the first weekend of December. If this isn't the right place for you, friends, know that my heart is not to grow this church numerically. My heart is just to be clear about the gospel and to be a faithful shepherd. 
And so if you are, yeah, I'd encourage you to come to the membership class and first weekend of December, if this isn't the church for you, and I, maybe it's not, I know I can be tough to take, I get, I get that, I get that, maybe this isn't the right place, then we would be glad to recommend to you other gospel preaching churches in our area. But friends, let's, let's have meaningful relationships where we care for one another. And if you're a member of this church, there are 563 other people that you are bound to in a special way that you're not bound to other Christians in this city and in this world. You, I think, should have a copy of this. I think you should pray through it regularly. And I think you should strategize on ways that you can spur these other people onto love and good deeds. I think that's our special responsibility as a church together. Listen to this quote from the work of the pastor by William Still, who was a Scottish pastor, and I end on this. This is so good. I've read it before a couple years ago. He says, Next to the ministry of the word, the most fruitful pastoral duty is to help all sorts of odd sheep live together. (laughs) That's you guys, by the way. (laughs) And show them how to live in the world amongst goats without becoming goats. The testimony of a true Christian church ought to be how Christians love one another, including the odd bods. Christ likes odd bods. I sometimes say that nearly all the fruitful Christian ministers and fruitful laymen I know are odd bods. But that's, that's where you say amen because I'm an odd bod, right? Easy now. But they are odd bods with a mission. A mission to fit other odd bods along with themselves into a fellowship for the glory of God and the good of an onlooking world. I pray that God would be so kind that I could give the balance of my life to serving you. And that then when I'm not very useful anymore, maybe you can give me a little a little pastor emeritus package and Jennifer and I can travel around the world and encourage our missionaries. <laughs> so, is that okay? Let's have a little family meeting here. Um, and I pray that whatever the Lord does with us, that on that day, he will say to a ragtag group of pardoned rebels that are part of Crosspoint, well done. Well done, good and faithful servants. Columbus is more like Jesus because of how you live together as a Jesus-believing, Bible-saturated, spirit-infused, gospel-loving, mission-sending, Bible-preaching, loving group of people. Let's pray. Father, who is sufficient for these things? Do this. I pray for your glory and our joy. If there's anybody in this room, Lord, who does not know Jesus, may they not slip out, but may they find somebody that they know to be a believer, and may they talk with them about what it means to trust in Jesus. Lord, may this room be full of people in a few moments, not just standing waiting for the song to end but people worshiping you, praying for you as families, praying for you as individuals, crying out to you how we might be formed more into the image of Christ. We thank you for making me one of the pastors of this church. Thank you for the other brother pastors that serve this church. Thank you for every member and every person in this room, every child in that hallway. Thank you for how good you've been to us these last 11 years. Use us, Lord, for your glory and our good. For decades to come, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.